Hi, I'm Kelsey Warner, the future editor at The National. Welcome to this special edition of the Business Extra podcast coming to you from The National's newsroom in Abu Dhabi, where we are joined by Mustafa El-Rawi, assistant editor-in-chief, who's been at Davos since the very beginning, the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. We're going to be talking to him about what's going on on the ground. But first, if you're watching us from YouTube or anywhere where you listen, please do subscribe. All right, Mustafa, tell us, you're here in Davos. You've been on the ground, you know, interview by interview. It seems like it's been a mad pace as it is every year. But what are you hearing? What are you seeing? Uh, well, first of all, it's nice to see you, Kelsey. Yeah, good to see I you. I miss Abu Dhabi very much, <laughs> um, which is good to say. Although it, it has been quite vibrant here. You can see behind me um, the people streaming past on what is the last full day here at the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland. Uh, Friday will be a busy morning, but then, um, you know, lunchtime onwards, it's kind of over. Uh, but many people leave Thursday evening as well. So this is very much the last full day in terms of all big decision makers, um, officials, uh, government leaders, etc. So, um, you know, it's, it's been an interesting uh, week and there's a lot to kind of chew on about the year ahead. Right. So the meeting really does tend to lay out the themes for the year ahead. It sort of positions itself as a future forecasting opportunity for major decision makers around the world. So, of course, we've got war in Ukraine, energy transition, comma, energy crisis. What are what are the other things that are top of mind that are adding nuance to the conversations you're having? So, so the hypothesis that I've kind of come up with is that many risks are baked in. So the Ukraine war, baked in. Uh, inflation, we know that that's going to be an issue. Uh, the various um, you know, economic uh, forecasts of a downturn, you know, perhaps uh, high unemployment isn't going to be sustained. I think everybody realizes that as we, as we came in to the tail end of 2022, um, a lot of the the kind of big obstacles to growth for 2023 were very clear. Um, and every year that I come here in Davos, I always get it wrong when it comes to predicting what's going to be the biggest story of the year, uh, <laughs> most famously uh, with the pandemic well, in nobody, 2020. Okay, everyone and nobody predicted the pandemic. So, but I think that- pan- Yeah, but it was in front of my nose, literally in front of my nose. So I will kick myself. I'm not saying I could have saved everyone, but- you know, at least at least I could have been more prepared. Davos really was, though, the first and last major convening amid the COVID-19 pandemic, right? I mean, there were press conferences happening there at Davos with the World Health Organization about the state exactly. of the crisis. And yet we still did not adequately prepare or marshal the resources we needed as a global community. I mean, basically, nobody in January 2020 was listening to epidemi- epidemiologists. I can barely pronounce it now. Um, even though that's that was the word of 2020, um, and they brought they brought three of the world's leading um, experts in that field to, to in one room to talk about the virus that had broken out in in Wuhan, and and we still really weren't listening to them. I mean, we were hearing them, but we weren't really listening. And so here, um, but the, yeah. So I mean, so on. in January here, it feels like the the red alarm fire really is the climate change. So who who are we not listening to this year? I think the energy companies actually. Um, from what I've seen, they are well organized and they are ready. And, and I think there's been reports about, you know, organized uh, 
move, you know, movements at you know various climate summits and meetings. Um, from what you know, reports have called the oil lobby, which sounds quite ominous. But really, what it is from the from the the executives that I've listened to and seen here of international uh, energy companies, it's that they're not going to leave it. They're not going to leave their business to chance. I mean, they. It, it, it's. I'm not talking sort of you know evil empire here, Star Wars, Death Star. It's not that actually, because nobody is arguing about climate. Nobody is arguing about um, you know the need to do more to hit our Paris goals. And of course, at COP28 in the UAE later this year, it will be a, a, a global stock take on how we did on those goals. But there, there's you know the the language is still um, you know divisive at the moment when it comes to the climate. And we've heard that here uh, this week. I mean, uh, Guterres, the, um, Antonio Guterres, the, the, the UN Secretary General, you know, basically compared big energy to big tobacco, said they have to be responsible for, for basically, you know, lying to us all about the damage they were doing, that they knew they were doing this damage. And that's fair. It's a fair assessment of the past. But from what I've seen is the energy companies are ready to look to the future now. They're ready to be part of the solution. However, and I think on the other side of activists and maybe people who might feel they're opposing energy companies and want oil to stop or want any investment in hydrocarbons to stop, um, you know, they would see that you know, just the energy companies um, being in the conversation is wrong. Right. But if, from everything we saw in 2022, it's that we, need, we still need energy. Right. Um, and, and, and so you know, there has to be that balance. And so I think if, 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 the, if the other side of the argument doesn't become a bit more realistic that the energy companies are actually here to stay. They're not going anywhere and they're actually tooling up for, for, the, for this year's discussions and they want to be a part of it, then we're really going to miss an opportunity. And so, so I think there's a big, big risk on, on, on climate in the sense that we, we, we are disunited and we need to see a bit more unity before COP28. We can't expect everybody to kind of get together on the same page. That's why they're so fraught, right, these negotiations. And I remember at COP26 in Glasgow, um, you know, the negotiations were delayed. I think we waited a, a whole day for the communique because of the complications. Mm -hmm. We need to work on some unity now um, between all parties to get to a point where we, we kind of achieve all the goals. Well, it's interesting this year that we're having this energy security and energy transition conversation. And Dr. Sultan Al-Jaber has been named president-designate for COP28 obviously the CEO of ADNOC and the chairman of Mazdar, the renewable energy company in Abu Dhabi. So as somebody to lead that conversation, it seems like a real convergence of, of you know, themes and exactly what you just laid out. But the kind of international, um, you know, earlier this week, I got the chance to interview U.S. climate envoy John Kerry and get his take on how he felt about, you know, a, a, an oil exec leading leading the conversation. He said, absolutely appropriate. Um, they must lead the transition. The transition is underway. And as you're saying, they are anticipating, you know, they they can't be left out of this conversation. Uh, last barrel of oil is on its way. Uh, and so we need to be prepared. And the conversation does need to include oil and gas at the table, or as they're now branding themselves, energy companies. They are now energy companies. They're not oil companies. Um, so what are the other, okay, climate change check, what are the other themes you're seeing this year that will set the stage for 2023? I think what people aren't, uh, well, not everybody, um, they're not necessarily paying enough attention to artificial intelligence here. Mm. Again, a lot of the conversation is about risks that we knew about. 
And partly this is this is a hangover of the fact that we had the last uh, World Economic Forum annual meeting in May, which is seven months. So it, it, some of the discussions feel a bit familiar. Um, and of course, Ukraine is a huge story. And, you know, there's, there's many Ukrainians here, not just the First Lady, also the Klitschko brothers, one of whom is the mayor of Kiev. They are, f they are dealing with war every day. So that's very, very important. That doesn't go away. But like I said before, um, for, if we're talking this audience that we're discussing this, this, these topics with, it's business decision makers. They knew about this. They knew this was coming. I mean, there's, there's uh, risks to the upside, if you like, where if the war stopped tomorrow or if um, you know, inflation ceased tomorrow or if, if you know, the um, economic downturn reversed immediately and then suddenly a lot of plans would have to be reversed quickly. There's risk in that, but I don't think that's happening in the first half of the year anyway. Um, or at least not 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 quicker than that. Um, and when it comes to artificial intelligence, however, we saw at the tail end of last year something seismic that I didn't appreciate um, until I came here. And and I mentioned one of the pieces I wrote uh, with the chief executive of Coursera, um, Joe Maggion Calder. He we sat together for the best part of an hour and we we're playing with ChatGPT mm -hmm. and what it can do. Our conversation was about how it would disrupt education. And he is, he's you know, the CEO of one of the largest online education providers. He said by June, he thought, education would be changed forever by this tool. So that's just education. But the actual applications for artificial intelligence that can truly engage with you in a conversational way and essentially eliminate any need for writing in English is potentially massive. Um, you know, uh, and, and the applications that are going to be built on top of it yeah. as well that are going to come very, very quickly could also be highly disruptive. Right. The integration into Microsoft's tools and the applications that can be built on top of it. I remain skeptical about its use to sort of replace, for it to be kind of just a rote thing that we can ask it to generate. Um, you know, recently CNET had to recant. They were publishing AI written uh, pieces of journalism. It should be in quotation marks that it was journalism because uh, a, like a, the most cursory fact check <laughs> proved it to be basically useless fodder, um, but generated by AI and humans just thought, oh, well, it's authoritative because it was generated by an artificial intelligence. So it was actually not edited as well as it should have been because we trust we gave it too much trust. Uh, so agree with you. It's a it's an incoming risk disagree with you in terms of, I think, how it's going to be used. We'll have to continue to involve that, conver evolve well, that conversation. I mean, I mean just, just, just to extend the point, I mean, the, the, there's always going to be issues over the source data, mm -hmm. the source material. I don't think anyone's saying that, that suddenly that, that risk has gone away. But it's the, it's, the, it's the interaction of everyday people with AI that up to now has really been the domain of, of engineers and kind of, you know, techies. And so, and so this, is, this, is, this is something very everyday. So, you know, w w regardless of what applications come through, this will expand people's minds. So I'll give you a really good example of like the 2017 Bitcoin rally that really broke through the consciousness yes. of digital assets and what they could be. This is what ChatGPT will do for most people in AI by the end of the year. So, you're, you know, you, you, your mother-in-law, for example, is the classic I like that um, example. You know, I like that analogy, but okay. I this is this is just an idea for a future uh, business extra podcast episode because we don't have time to get into this today. The other question I want to ask you before we close out here, because I know you're busy, is 
the Inflation Reduction Act coming down the pipe in the U.S., $400 billion historic levels of investment into renewables and the U.S. energy transition. Is it part of the conversation? Is it seen as a protectionist move? How is it going to affect like upcoming trade wars, geopolitics? How will that impact 2023? Honestly, I, I've heard very little about that mm. here. And, that, and, that, and that's partly because I've been really trying to get an assessment of where the Middle East and the Gulf region are going to be this year. I'm, I, I'm not... I've not been trying to drill down too much in in sort of the knock-on effects from the US onto the region because, and I'm not just saying this because I, I can't answer your question because I can't, but uh, all, but because actually there are so many fundamentals that are particular to the Gulf for at least the first nine months of this year that almost what's happening in the rest of the world isn't of too much import yet. And so we, can we seize the opportunity of what's happening? So I think the thing I want to put a pin in, in addition to this AI debate that we still need to have, is uh, the on the other side of the U.S. renewable energy effort is PACE, which is its partnership with the UAE to accelerate clean energy. And that's $100 billion, which is a quarter of, we're all talking about how big the Inflation Reduction Act is, but actually the capital going behind the PACE initiative is also really sizable and something that will have material effect on this region. So that's something that I also want to keep an eye on when we think about yes. our 2023 resolutions. Yeah, and we'll know more about that as we build up to COP28 because there'll be different projects announced related to that. And I think the, the key to that is cooperation. So, I mean, the whole, you know, to circle back to the World Economic Forum annual meeting, the whole point of this year is can we start cooperating again in a really meaningful way regardless of, of ideology and thoughts? And, and, and that applies to climate, it applies to, to renewables, it applies to trade. I mean, that, that's what everyone's been trying to do this week. Um, I don't know if we've we've kind of made headway on 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 at least working together with people that we we don't agree with, um, but it, I think that I think that has to happen now. Um, you know, there, a lot of talk about bipartisanship. You know, that's a very um, you know lofty word, um, but in reality, we rarely see it um, these days. So so we we that we need we need to find more of that and more areas for cooperation and tie ups. Um, otherwise, we won't be able to not just handle the risks, but, but seize the opportunities as well. Mustafa Arawi, thank you so much, our guy on the ground in Davos, and safe travels back to Abu Dhabi. See you, Kelsey. That's all for today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your audio content. All that's left to do is thank our production team. I've been your host, Kelsey Warner. See you next week.